It is such a blessing to worship together in the name of Jesus and to open God's word among God's people. Uh, we are in a series, actually we're going to be concluding our series uh, called Welcome Holy Spirit uh, this weekend. And I would encourage you to get one of these note sheets that are available in your bulletin. Your bulletin is uh, really helpful too for a lot of other information uh, about things that are coming up and things that are going on. Uh, so I, I just to remind you of where we've been, if we can change over the back screen so that it shows uh, me the pictures, that will help me a lot. There we go. Uh, we had, uh, we've had 13 uh, studies uh, so far in this series on Holy Spirit. I could go for a long, long time studying the Holy Spirit, uh, but we need to stop at some point and shift and, and change gears a little bit. But I, I put those up there. Uh, you may see some that you don't remember. They're all available online on YouTube, also available on our church website. We'd love for you to connect or through the app. Uh, that's a very helpful way to uh, catch up and to study. Uh, and we're in our final week. Last week, we were looking at uh, the church and the Spirit-filled church. And this week, we're looking at the Spirit-filled home. You might wonder, well, why move in that direction? Why conclude with, with that sort of a topic? And it occurred to me as I was uh, praying over this and studying this and as we were traveling that really all of our words about Holy Spirit are just words unless they become practical and unless they make a difference in our homes. I mean, really, the definition of hypocrisy would be to be really Spirit-filled out here and then at home, there's no difference. Uh, because it's, then it's just something that we're putting on. It's just some kind of an act that we're uh, being a part of. So Holy Spirit within the body of Christ, within the church, within our personal experience is powerful. But families and home are really the building blocks of church and community. And so that's what I want to dig into with you this morning. So the big question of the weekend is, how do we have spirit-filled families? How do we do that? Um, and, and the question really goes way back to the question, how do we pass on faith to the next generation? V way back at the beginning, uh, they faced this. They had had this amazing experience with the Lord Jesus and experiencing the gospel and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized and all these cool things. But then they said, what about our kids? They don't even understand this yet. And so actually, you know, some of the methods were, well, let, let's baptize the kids. And they started baptizing children and infants and that sort of thing. Historically, that's why that happened. And then there, there were other traditions that developed uh, something like uh, uh, dedication, uh, which is what we practice, and uh, dedication and education as a process of discipleship. Uh, the truth is, uh, and we figure this out, is that you cannot fill your child with God's spirit. Have you figured this out? Yeah. Uh, you can really, some of you have tried, haven't you? <laughs> and you can't fill your child, you can't fill anybody with God's spirit. It's something that only God can do. But you can lead and invest and teach and model the way of Christ. And you can create an environment that surrounds your family, surrounds a child, uh, with the ways of Christ. So I know some of you may be already be saying, well, this isn't really for me. I mean, I'll stay and listen. I don't want to be rude, but I don't really have family anymore, this or that. And I just want to say that, uh, you know, we often say families come in all shapes and sizes. And, uh, and I would say that families arrive at 
all different shapes and sizes. And most families don't end up in the same shape that we first imagined. I mean, I know in my own family, uh, in 1959, my dad was 31 years old and he was the rising prominent, well thought of attorney in Springfield, Missouri. And he had this lovely wife and two little scrappy boys and they took them to church and one more baby on the way and it all changed in a day. And things change. I mean, wow, we've seen that. In the last couple of years, we've seen more of those changes uh, than maybe we ever anticipated. You know, I thought about the, the way that families uh, shape and reshape. It's a little like that thing where you're driving somewhere and suddenly your GPS says, you're going the wrong way. Recalculating, <laughs> recalculating your route. And there's a lot of recalculation. You might say, well, I don't really have any family. Yes, you do. Uh, they may not all be at hand. They may not all be nearby. But we have family. We come from families. We extend into families. And we have faith family. So, uh, but they're all these many different shapes and, and sizes. There's two-parent homes, single-parent homes, blended family homes, homes crowded with children. There's empty nest homes. Then there's empty nest homes that get repopulated. Have you heard of those? Yeah. And, and then there's extended family homes and single-person homes. And there's homes where grandparents are raising grandchildren. It's really just an amazing thing uh, that happens and I think one of the most important is faith family homes. Sometimes I talk to people and, and they say, this is my family. I mean, I, more and more I hear that. People will say, I, I mean, I have family, but this is my family. This is who I'm connected with. This is who is here for me. So a, a real major point I want us to get is that no matter the shape of your home, there are biblical principles that position us. I like that phrase. Position us to be a spirit-filled home. And that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for you, no matter what the shape of your home is. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning verse 15. Uh, we've looked at parts of this passage uh, over the summer a couple of different times. Pastor Paul did part of this last weekend. I heard he kind of put it to you last weekend. Is that true? Yeah. It's uh, challenging, and, I, and uh, that's, that's a good thing. But we want to look at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning verse 15, as Paul writes. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything. To God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he might that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's stand and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I thank you for a word that is even difficult, difficult to hear, difficult to interpret, difficult to understand, word that we wrestle with and that then you lift us with. And Father, we thank you that we can study your word, and I, I pray that you would engage with us that we might know better how to be families positioned to be filled with the Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. What I want to do uh, this morning with you is lift out uh, principles uh, for positioning ourselves. And there are 10 of them. I know some of you are thinking, boy, we're going to be here until tonight. (laughs) I promise we won't be here until tonight. But there's a lot in this passage. And it all has to do with family, no matter what shape family we have. The very first thing that uh, Paul says as he wrote to the Ephesians is a spirit-filled home is going to be a careful home, not a haphazard home, not a distracted home, not a whatever direction or a flow with the go home. Uh, Look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then a verse later, therefore, do not be foolish But understand what the will of the Lord is. I don't know anybody that sets out and says, well, I want to have a foolish home, right? I don't want to be known as a foolish family. And so we realize that decisions have consequences. They make a difference. The the things that we decide, the ways that we invest our time, the ways that we invest our hearts and our energy make a difference. And so Paul says, walk as the wise and not as the unwise. Walk in the way of Christ and not in the way of the world. It's one of the most fundamental principles. 
And, and as we raise children, uh, if you've raised children, you've heard this, there's this thing that comes that says, well, but everybody else. And then we say something in response to that. Well, we're not everybody else. We're following the way of Christ, not, not the way of the world. And so that's fundamentally what he's talking about here. A spirit-filled family follows Christ and not the world. Uh, you may re- remember the verse in Joshua 24. It may be on your wall somewhere, on a plaque. It's marvelous, or at least part of it. Joshua, right at the end of the book of Joshua, he's kind of getting fed up with all the people who say, well, it was better back in Egypt and this and that. And he says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, <laughs> that's putting it strongly, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your, your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites, those that were in that land, in the, in the land that you dwell, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Why don't we say that last sentence together? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's just this fundamental decision. We're not like the world. And so we have boundaries, we have restrictions, we have curfews, we have times you have to be where you're supposed to be in a household. We're respectful in that way. And that's not to control or to over-control, but you know there have been a lot of studies that have shown that children who have no boundaries really don't feel loved. You don't love me enough to make a boundary? My friends have boundaries. I think their parents love them. They may not say it that way. We may say, it. you know, this is what our family does. And this is not a matter of withholding approval. You have to do what I say uh, so that you'll have my approval or or something like that. Uh, We need to express approval that we are pleased with children. Parent to child, it's so important. Something like this. I am pleased with you. I am pleased with who you are and who God is making you to be. Why? Because you're fearfully the Bible says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You were knit together in, in, in our womb. And God puts you together and we treasure that. We treasure who you are. And so because of that, I'm not going to push you to achieve something that I failed to achieve when I was in high school or college. I'm not going to push you to get the awards that I could never get or, or didn't pursue. Uh, you don't have to strive to seek my approval or the applause and the accolades of the world. The truth is, if you please God, and I, I tried to convey this to our kids, they're, they're all grown now. Uh, if you please God, you'll please me. That's it. And if you disappoint God, he will still be there loving you, and so will I. So that's what we want to strive for. I've met so many people who they, they find themselves trying in their adult life to please a parent who's gone, that you can never please that will never happen. We need to please God. And we, we begin that in the earliest of years. The second principle is to make the best use of the time. There's only so much. And the calendars get crowded. And our, our schedules uh, become frenetic and, and weary. Uh, there's so many things, so many demands. And he says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. How many of you know the days are evil? What that means, it means that they fly by, they come and they go. 
I mean, I've observed it, and this would be my observation about some of the ways this happens. The first five years, age zero to five, are critically important. I, I, I read a number of studies, and every study shows that a child's brain develops more and faster in those first five years than at any other time in life. Now, let that sink in a little bit. It's really important. We tend to think, I need to save up for college because college is the most important time. Those four years. I'm going to save up and we're going to spend $100,000 or something or go into debt for those four years or those five years or those six years. And they're really important. And I, that can be very, very important. The most important years you can invest in a child, zero to five. Because that is when so many things happen, the relationships that they experience, the, the things that they see, hear, touch, smell, taste. They all are stimulating the brain. I knew this when my kids were growing up. I mean, I studied developmental psychology. But, but I see it now more than ever in these little grandchildren, nine little grandchildren now. We had one in the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and these, children, these little babies, I look at them, they're like little sponges. They're just absorbing everything. You just watch them. How, how uh, everything around them is making a difference. These are the years when they develop these social skills and, and personality and cognitive skills and their decision-making and their ability to concentrate are all in those zero to five. The next five years, uh, six to ten, are when they're doing things and it becomes very frenetic and there are all these activities and they're important activities. But families face these huge demands on their time. And so I think Paul would say, be careful about the management of that. Set some priorities. Get some balance in all that. Those things are important. There are things I learned in team sports that are so valuable. But you can't do all the sports. There are things I learned in, in music. And I played instruments and I sang and I did different musical things. But you can't do all of those things. I, I gave up dancing years ago. <laughs> Well, there's lots and lots of things that, that pull. And everybody wants our children in their activities and our grandchildren in their activities. And so calendars become difficult. I remember a time when we were, uh, we were up in Jacksonville and we had to have our kids in three different parts of the county. Three kids in three different parts. And there's only two of us. And it's very, very difficult to do that. That's when we took up taekwondo because they could be in one place at one time. You know, somebody said, when is Thanksgiving? And Thanksgiving is when soccer season is over. You know, that's a definition. But the truth is that relational investment one-on-one is exceedingly powerful in the long term. We have to find time for this, for the one-on-one time. And we're finding it so powerful with grandparenting, uh, to one-on-one and, and with nieces and nephews to spend some time with them. Uh, you won't be able to be with them all the time, but you can, you can teach them that you will be there when they need you. You know, there's this question that, that occurred to me a lot because my father died when he was 31, and that is, what if I die and I'm not here? It's a really good question. And I would have to say that over the past several years, we've seen that more and more to be not just a hypothetical question. But the truth is that the things that you plant and the things that you uh, give, the words and connections and teaching moments, those are the things that will be there. You know, so many times uh, I talk to people and they'll say, I just wish I could talk to my dad right now. I just wish that I could talk to my mom. And the truth is, if we plant those things, you can. I know what my dad would say. I know what my mom would say. 
I know what my, my grandpa would say. I know these things because they were invested in me. The next five years, age 11 to 15, these are difficult. How many of you know that? Adolescence is this time it's defined uh, as a time when a child becomes their own person. They're trying to figure out, how am I different from my parents? You know, I've gotten a lot from my parents, but how am I different? And the hormones are raging and their bodies are changing. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but at about age 14, a teenager knows everything. (laughs) And you know nothing. (laughs) That's right. Now, hopefully that changes over the years that are ahead. It reverses. Uh, and that they'll know that they can come to you for, with questions and struggles and things that they uh, need to understand. This is also the time of defining their own faith. There's a window in which most people who ever come to faith come to faith. And if we just throw that away, well, we're doing a whole lot with sports and music and this and that and all these activities and extracurriculars, but we forget about the faith component. It's a big mistake because it's in that window that, uh, that it happens. And, and why do we invest so much in children's ministry and youth ministry? Here's why. Because there's a time in a teenager's life when my teenager won't listen to me, but will listen to you. And because we agree in our, in our values and in our faith, I'm going to trust you to be of influence with my teenager. And you're going to trust me to be of influence with your teenager. And that's, that's how it works. That's community of faith. So very important. The next thing is what I call the launch years. And it's age 16 to roughly 40. <laughs> you say, when is the launch? You might notice that picture over there. That's Artemis. When is the launch of Artemis? I mean, there's a date out there, but yeah. When it's ready. Exactly, yeah. When it's ready is when it will launch. And, and a lot of that depends on the investments that are made in those early years and in the next five years. Um, but that happens, and, and we're seeing more and more. I've seen more and more where families move home. You say, well, our, our kids and their, and their kids moved home. They're going to live with us for a year while they save for a house. And they can't get a house unless they do that. This is more and more common in the world that we live in. So the launch can take a while. Um, and sometimes folks come home. And I've seen more and more where grandparents are raising grandchildren. Uh, it, it's an amazing time that we live in. The third one is a really, really important one. And it's something that I don't talk about often because it just really doesn't come up that much as we go through scripture. But a spirit-filled home is a sober home. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And it's almost as if to say, if you're drunk with wine, you can't be filled with the spirit. I mean, that's, that's almost the juxtaposition of that phrasing. You know, I I mean, it seems like more and more we live in a culture that is saturated with alcohol. I I mean, it's almost undeniable. I looked it up, though, last night, and actually, the United States consumes less alcohol than any other Western nation. I was surprised. The highest ones are Latvia, Russia. Um, They are Eastern Bloc countries. They are countries where there is no hope, really, lots of alcohol consumption because there's nothing else. And so, you know, I think we're really, really blessed to live in a free nation. 
So what is this about? Uh, Do not get drunk with wine. Uh, We need to know what the Bible actually says. A lot of people say things that they think the Bible says. But that word drunk uh, is is a Greek word, methusko. Say that with me, methusko. And it means intoxicated, inebriated, or impaired, somehow affected. It's hard to gauge that, exactly what that is. The apostle says that is, uh, to be drunk with wine, that is debauchery, which means excessive, it's translated excessive indulgence or sensual pleasure. The Greek word is very interesting, though. You want a little Greek? Greek, 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 okay. It's the word asotia, say that with me, asotia, and that's actually a negative participle, hang with me, all right, uh, of the word sozo, which you may know is the word for salvation. So it means unsaved. You can literally translate this, do not be drunk uh, with wine because you will be unsaved. That is unsaved. Now, I don't think it means that you will lose your salvation. We're not talking about eternal destiny here. But it means that you will very likely act like the unsaved if you are impaired. You increasingly, it's a slope, you increasingly act less saved the more inebriated that you are. And you will not be representing Christ well. That's what Paul was saying. So does this mean no alcohol? Is that what it's saying? Well, we, we know that the Bible actually does not unilaterally condemn the use of alcoholic beverages. In fact, wine was a part of the ancient world. It was a part of ritual observances. And, uh, and actually, wine was commonly mixed with water to make it healthy. You had to mix wine with water to basically sterilize a little bit of wine with water. And this is done uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, And this is really done at all meals in Italy, I read. I I, I looked it up to see about it. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9 says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. That doesn't sound condemning. Uh, uh, For God has already approved what you do. We know Jesus changed water into wine so, uh, so that a wedding celebration wouldn't be ruined. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote to his young protege, Timothy, he said, drink a little wine for your stomach ailments. And it may have had to do with purifying the water. It may have been to help with digestion. We don't know exactly. Proverbs kind of goes both ways, warns against alcohol and then also commends it at certain times. But what the Bible condemns is drunkenness, especially continual habitual drunkenness. Uh, what is drunk? I mean, we could talk a lot about that. Drunk means drunk, means impaired in some way. Proverbs 20 says, wine is a, a mocker. I don't want to be mocked. <laughs> Strong drink is a brawler. That is, it, it brings out fighting. And whoever is led astray is not wise. So the question is, uh, does alcohol lead you astray? I mean, that's a good question to ask of ourselves. The Hebrew that's used there is shagah. Say that with me, shagah. It means to stray, to make mistakes, to transgress morally, uh, to reel or stagger or be deceived or to be enraptured. There's a whole lot in that. I mean, if you mistake the ditch for the road, <laughs> then that, that's a, a result of this, you know. To be enraptured means to think you're in love with somebody that you shouldn't be in love with. And alcohol can lead in that kind of direction. 
The state of Florida defines drunk as a, a .08 blood alcohol concentration. And, and, but no, people don't drive around with breathalyzers, and they don't go to parties or to football games with breathalyzers. They probably should. It would be a good idea. Um, but people vary. Uh, everything that I, I read, a lot of different things about it. Usually two to three drinks for a man is right there. I mean, you, you don't want to get in a car. You don't. And usually one to two drinks for a woman, and it depends on, on weight and some things like that. I would just say you know when you're crossing a line. You know when you're beginning to slide. If, if you drink, then you know that. A lot of people try to manage moderation, and yet there's a, there's a difficult place there. Um, one thing that I would say is that in 40 years of ministry working with families, few things that I could ever name have caused as much pain, destruction, bad choices, and damaging words as alcohol. I mean, it, very, very, it can be very, very destructive. And so, I mean, I know people, people in my family that say, I won't have a drop, I won't have it anywhere near me, it will not be in my home. That's one choice. Another choice is to try to be careful and, uh, and, and use it within a, a food context. Question is, um, is there an alcohol problem in our home? And we don't address this all the time, so this is a, g- a good time. Um, there's something that's been happening in the last couple of years. I mean, I've talked to several doctors who have talked about pandemic drinking, the increase in the use of alcohol during the pandemic. Um, one study found that alcohol consumption rose among adults over the age of 30 by 14%. That's a lot. That's not 2%. That's not 3%. 14% during the pandemic. And a 41% increase in women heavily drinking. That's defined as three or more drinks a day during pandemic. So it, it's of concern, maybe not to you, but certainly to some people around us. Um, in the app notes, I have a, a series of questions that are used commonly to diagnose, the diagnostic questions, uh, which is, you know, uh, is there a problem? Do I have red flags? And I, I just want to go through those real fast. They're available to you, and uh, you can get them on our, on our website, of course. Um, and the questions are, does your use of alcohol, one, uh, make you miss important functions like class or work? I mean, if you call in sick when you're really hungover, there's a problem. Uh, does your use of alcohol cause you to avoid family or friends and become isolated? Make you feel depressed, angry, or violent? Cause you to spend money you don't have and create financial problems? Disrupt your relationships with family and friends, especially marriage and with our children, Cause you to make unsafe decisions sexually. Cause you to do something illegal and or get arrested for your behavior. Cause you to drive under the influence. Cause you to have blackouts. If you can't remember, that's a red flag. And if you answer yes to even one of those, it would be a really good idea to get with someone and explore this. Do I have have a problem? How am I going to deal with that problem? The fourth principle is a shorter one, and I know we dealt with it last week, um, 
And that is a spirit-filled home is a worshipful home, uh, calling for us to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It doesn't mean you walk around singing uh, in the home all the time. But it's also a lot more than just showing up to church once a week or every other week or once a month or something like that. It's, it's having times of devotion, times of worship. It doesn't mean you have to have a service on the altar or something like that. But you can have communion in your own home. And, and also uh, times of prayer. We pray before meals. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, we prayed before meals. And I remember when I was a little kid, I thought, if we don't say the prayer, the, the food won't be blessed and it'll probably be poisonous, you know. <laughs> Anybody else think that? That's not the case. But we found that if, it's this reminder, we have food and we're grateful for it. But we're grateful for a whole lot of other things, so we give thanks. And we, we talk to God about our day and we pray for the things that are ahead. Uh, with worship and gratitude. The fifth uh, principle is that a spirit-filled home is a submitted home. Uh, Verse 21 is so important. Uh, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is within the body of Christ. This This is a matter of getting along, but it's also very much a principle in marriage and in our relationships with children. What does submission mean? Submission, um, some, some define it as being under the protection of, but it also simply means giving in. It means not always having to have my own way. It means letting go of, of being self-centered and, and choosing to be unselfish. Submission is when we don't have to have our own way and we've learned to listen and to give rather than to, to demand and take Submission follows the example of Christ and, and, and is really all about the, the way of Christ as he is head of the home. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the image for marriage. Absolutely. The image is two people bowed to Christ, seeking the path that he has for them instead of our own ways. And, and the, you know, it's powerful because it also is an example to uh, the children uh, if they see that going on. The sixth is a spirit-filled home has order following Christ. And so this is the one that always uh, people kind of wince a little bit at or they wonder about. So let's listen to it again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I think the word own is important. We're not uh, to submit to someone else outside of our marriage. For the husband is the head of the wife, uh, and that means like leader protector, or the one who represents the family before Christ, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, should be under the protection of, uh, of their husbands. Now, actually, that verse 22 is redundant because we already heard that we are to be submitted to one another. So nothing's been added except a sort of structural order within the family and and under Christ. Uh, When we look at this, um, it's often been taught um, that if, if a husband and wife come to an irresolvable impasse, where someone has to make a final decision, somebody has to make a call, that the husband should make the final call. I've heard that taught. I've probably even said it at some point. 
But I have to say that after uh, 44 years of marriage, I cannot recall a single time when we came to an impasse like that, that we could not pray about, that we could not seek God's will for. And if we could not seem to resolve it, we would wait, we would pray more. I can't remember a single time when I said, well, Anne, you just have to, you just have to submit and do what I say. I wonder how that would go over. I'm not. (laughs) But the truth is, I don't know that if we're submitted in reverence before Christ, why would that happen? And, And I have to say that in hundreds of marriages that I've worked with, I've never seen that to be the case. Now, let me just say as an aside, this is an important parenthetical. Um, Submission does not mean uh, permitting yourself or your family to be abused. It just is not. Uh, The Bible, the Lord would not call us to be be submitted in some kind of way that involves abuse. Um, In fact, you know, later when it talks about children, it talks about in the Lord, parents in the Lord. And so if you're in a situation that's not safe, reach out, get safe, get help. Uh, Call us, let us know. It's very, very important. The seventh principle, a spirit-filled home is led by sacrificial love. It may be the most important thing for us to understand in terms of marriage. Husbands, love your wives, get ready for it, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. I don't know a more challenging statement in all of Scripture. I'm supposed to love her in the same way that Christ loved the church and died for the church. And I don't know that I can ever do that, but for the grace of God in me, I don't know that I can even approach that, but it's so important to understand that, that that's my goal, not to lord over my wife in some sort of a way. That he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church uh, to himself. It's giving this beautiful picture of, of purifying uh, our wife as Christ purifies the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, uh, for no man ever hated his own flesh. Guys, you don't hate your body, do you? I'll tell you honestly, I cannot remember a single time that I've ever forgotten to eat. Some of you understand what I mean? I just don't forget to eat. I mean, I I would have to be really distracted to forget. You know, we, we are concerned about our bodies and to love our wife in the same way as Christ has loved the church and as our own bodies. Love your wife in this way. It occurred to me when I, every time I study this, every time I look at that, is that if your wife knows you will die for her, um, then she will gladly, well, readily, at some point, follow your leadership. Why? She trusts you. She knows you're not all about yourself. With children, it's the same way. Now, a lot of times it's not, well, will he die for me? It's, will he take the garbage out to the street? You know, it's much more simple. Well, that's part of it, too. Sacrificially loving and caring. We're not to lord over our spouse. The eighth, a spirit-filled home is held together by Jesus glue. Now, what is Jesus glue? Um, Pastor Ann used to talk, always talk with our kids about Jesus glue. You know, you two, you're, you're, you're held together with Jesus glue, your brother, your sister, okay? 
And I thought, well, she's a teacher, so she thinks in, with glue and scissors and things like this. But, but it's actually scriptural. Uh, in that scripture, it says, we have this amazing statement, Therefore, a man shall leave, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, be glued to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the biblical definition of marriage. This is how the Bible, God invented marriage and this is the way that he defined it. And that word hold fast, uh, the Greek word is proskolao. Say that with me, proskolao. It means to cleave. That's the old word that we hear. Or glue together. And once glued together, they become one flesh by sexual union. And Paul says it's a mystery that any marriage can stay together. It's a mystery. It's of God. That God holds them together. And he likens it to Christ in the church. Now listen to this. When, when God gave, and gave Christ and Christ became, entered into human flesh, we call that incarnation. That's the same thing in human flesh. And he was absolutely committed. He was not going to leave that cleaving, that gluing for anything, even death. Jesus is still in a human flesh, glorified human flesh body. He never left his body. And he, he ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God. So it's very, very powerful that the husband uh, is to, to love his wife in that way and we're to cleave to one another. The ninth principle is that a spirit-filled home teaches obedience and honor. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, I think that's important, in the Lord. Uh, A child, I think children need to know, if a parent is asking them to do something that's against, they know it's against God. They know it's against God's word. They need to get some help. They need to talk to someone. That That needs to be understood and taught. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Obedience is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But obedience flows out of honor. It comes, it comes as a result of honor. You know, we, we talk a lot about honoring within marriage and honoring within the home. I've really learned that obedience in children comes when you honor children. And, and that's a lot different from demanding obedience or punishing. Um, you know, as our kids were growing up, they would, uh, you know, they would win an award or they would uh, do something that was really magnificent and wonderful. It's one of those proud, we would call it a proud moment. And I learned, I just kind of, God ministered this into my heart. Rather than say, uh, son, I'm proud of you, I would say, son, I am honored to be your dad. Why do I say that? How can I be proud of something that I really had very little to do with? God made this amazing child and and put the talent in them and knit them together and made them fearfully and wonderfully. So there's not anything for me to take pride in. I, I, I created environment and shaped and drove to practices and things like that. But more, I am honored to be your dad. And when you honor a child, when you honor anyone, then they cooperate. There's an obedience that comes from that. 
If you honor your spouse, it shows your child how to honor you, how to honor your spouse. Um, And in all that process, when you honor your parents, it teaches your children how to honor you. You know, I realized a long time ago that the way that we care for our aging parents teaches our children how to care for their aging parents. And that's just a little ways around the corner. It's coming. The 10th is a spirit-filled home has discipline and instruction. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke. Some of the uh, translations use the word exasperate. Don't exasperate your kids. And sometimes parents can do that. Sometimes very much fathers can do that. Uh, One of the things with fathers, why does it specify fathers? Fathers are usually, if, if they're there, they're the biggest, strongest, loudest person in their life. You know, do you ever think about what it's like to be a, a little person and have this giant person who has an enormous loud voice screaming in your face? It's horrible. It's a horrible image, you know? Sometimes I see that in public and, and I don't know quite what to do. I, 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 I want to intervene and help in some way. But we need to not exasperate children, not provoke them to anger. Um, And so how we handle discipline and instruction, it sets the tone for the home. Are we going to have a home that is based in fear or that is based in safety, that feels like a safe place? Um, Pastor Ann, when our kids were growing up, made a big deal to make our kids eager for me to come home. When I come around my kids, they hug me, they love me to this day. And that's what we want to create within homes. And that's that's a matter of discipleship. That's what discipline is. It's it's discipleship. Instruction is a matter of of learning uh, within the home. Uh, But a lot of that is is, uh, stuff that is caught. Uh, And so we we kind of develop that from our parents, and we need to examine it and look at it within our our own home. Well, that's a lot. And um, it gives me a lot of challenge as as a parent and a grandparent and an uncle uh, to other little kids and to others, the extended, the more extended family. So my question is, uh, will your home, will my home be filled with the Spirit? Will, will I position my home in a way that it will be filled with the Spirit? Now, I wrote a prayer for us, uh, for me and for us to pray And I want to offer it to you and invite you to pray this prayer with me that comes out of this scripture. So I invite you, would you stand and let's pray together out of the word of God. Are you ready? Welcome, Holy Spirit. Come into my home. Fill my heart and family. I submit myself to your word and way. Give me wisdom to live carefully and use the time I have wisely. Show me the proper place for alcohol in my home and life. May I be clear-minded in all that I do and say. Reveal to me the changes that I need to make. Help me to develop a life of worship, thanksgiving, and prayer in my home. I submit myself to you, O God. Show me the way of Christ that I may serve those you have entrusted to me. I pray that my home and family will honor you 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Father, I thank you that you are a patient molder of hearts, disciples, and families, and homes. And I pray that no matter the, the shape of our family, that you would, uh, you would come in, that you would fill, and that your spirit would spill over into those that we come into contact with, those that we know, and those that are around us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.